Section 8 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 4. The Sources of Light. Rising from underneath the world, and flooding all nature with the growing splendor of its light, the morning sun has ever been to man a symbol of the power of goodness. The unparalleled poetic imagination of the Greeks clothed this symbolic object with personal attributes, and formulated the fiery chariot and flying steeds of the sun-god Apollo, the balder of the Norsemen, the Christ of early German legend. A growing Christianity synchronized with the effacement of the personal and divine attributes of light. The third century in Europe saw the development of an established church, Christian, and an established science, Greek. The properties of matter, light, sound, heat, as defined by Aristotle, became the accepted creed of Europe. A science not less dogmatic than theology ruled the thoughts of men until near the end of the 16th century, until Roger Bacon and Bruno and Galileo, with other less illustrious but not less courageous investigators, had suffered contempt and persecution, and even languished in prison for the splendid heresy of experimental truth. The conception of force intangible, irresistible, indestructible, was long in making its way into any system of popular philosophy. The world, as a cosmos of substance, possessed of varying qualities, was all-sufficient explanation for medieval thought of the phenomena of sense and the fabrications of reason. Light, like other things now conceded to be forms of force, was deemed a substance or a quality of substance. Generally, it was held to be a substance, possessed, like other substances, of such qualities as elasticity, reflection, and solubility, absorption. The law of the angle of incidence and reflection was known to the Egyptians and the Greeks. The Assyrians were familiar with the lens. The Arabs imitated from Greece and developed a system of optics involving a knowledge of mirrors, plane and spherical, lenses and prisms, the straight-line propagation of light, shadows and semi-shadows, or penumbra. That light travels in straight lines was one of the articles of faith of the Platonic school. Not all the Greek philosophers, however, maintained this view, and the variance of their opinions foreshadowed the uncertainty concerning light which has characterized all subsequent discussions of its exact nature. Aristotle wrote more voluminously than any of the Greeks upon this question, but his conclusions are dubious and obscure. Through his influence, the scholastics were led to regard light as something immaterial, rather a quality of bodies than a substance, and they sought to find in the bodies themselves something analogous with the color sensation of the eye. Both Euclid and Plato, however, conceived of light as something projected from the eye upon an illuminated body, causing sight as soon as it met another substance which emanated from the body. Pythagoras and Democritus held that visible bodies projected something into the eye, whereby they became visible. The Greeks knew something of spherical and parabolic mirrors. The story is told of Archimedes, 
that when the Romans were besieging his native city, Syracuse, he defended it by the use of mirrors reflecting the sun's rays, which focused upon the ships of the Romans as they came near, setting them on fire. The terrific heat developed in a modern solar engine makes this tale not so impossible as might at first sight appear, although it is likely that the men rather than the ships of the Romans were the sufferers under the fierce reflection from the mirrors of the Greeks. That the latter had gathered much other evidence with regard to the phenomena of light is unquestioned, for in a fragment of a Greek document discovered in Egypt, mention is made of various familiar optical illusions. They had observed, for example, that a ring on the bottom of an empty vessel, just hidden by the edge, becomes visible when water is poured into the vessel, and Cleomedes observed that in the same way the sun may be visible when it has actually sunk below the horizon. The Greeks had noticed also that the sun appears larger when rising or setting than when high in the heavens. They were familiar with the fact that light glances off from a mirror at the same angle as that at which it strikes. Among the Romans, no investigators of natural phenomena appeared to add anything of moment to the discoveries of the Greeks. Lucretius made some interesting comments on magnetism. Seneca observed and taught the identity of the colors in the edge of a piece of glass with those of the rainbow. He did not explain why they were identical. He remarked that a globular glass vessel full of water magnifies objects from which he was led to conclude that there is nothing so deceptive as sight, an inference not particularly ingenious nor highly illuminating as an explanation. Abu Ali al-Hassan, ibn al-Hassan, ibn al-Haytam, rose into favor under one of the caliphs of Egypt as a result of a plan, which he never carried out, to regulate the flow of the Nile for purposes of irrigation. He made a study of plane and spherical mirrors, and understood also the principle of parabolic reflectors, such as are used today in searchlights or in the headlights of locomotives, in which all the rays leave the mirror in parallel lines. He knew that a ray of light is flashed back from the surface of water at the same angle as that at which it strikes. He knew also that a beam of light entering water is bent from its course, refracted, to use the modern term. He was aware of the fact of apparent enlargement of the sun's diameter on approaching the horizon, and correctly explained it as due to the fact that the sun's diameter is then estimated by the size of less distant terrestrial objects, a view admitted by most scientists today. Al-Hazen, as he is more briefly known, also first described the human eye with exactitude of detail, and originated the famous and difficult problem in optics known as Al-Hazan's problem. Given the position of a luminous point and of the eye, to find the spot at which reflection takes place on a spherical, cylindrical, or conical mirror. Earlier even than the mirror appears the record of the lens. Among the ruins of Nineveh is reported to have been found a lens of rock crystal. Burning glasses were manufactured at an early date in Greece. In Aristophanes' Comedy of the Clouds is found mention of a fine transparent stone with which fires are kindled and by which, standing in the sun, one can, though at a distance, melt all the writing on a waxen tablet of the times. 
from the millennium of the beginning of this era european thought for five hundred years plodded blindly along the road that grecian philosophy had pointed roger bacon the one great man in all his time who dared to make a place for original thought and experimental science was crushed to silence by a ten years imprisonment for heresy petrus ramus in paris was forbidden on pain of corporal punishment to teach or write against the great aristotle with petrus ramus must likewise be mentioned franciscus patricius a learned italian fiercely persecuted by the aristotelians on account of his heretical theory that light and darkness together produce warmth and cold from the various theories of the philosophers of greece it is evident that the nature of light even in those early times was a much mooted question previous to the time of newton opinions as to its exact constitution were divided some held it to be a real substance others especially the followers of aristotle considered it a property or quality of matter early in the seventeenth century descartes formulated a new hypothesis as to the nature of light he held that it is neither material nor a property of matter but a vibration of that something of which matter is composed its second element he assumed that the whole universe is filled with minute spheres of this elemental substance through the constant motion of the particles of luminous bodies these little spheres are jarred and since there is no empty space in the universe beside them one sphere immediately touching another this jar or disturbance is immediately distributed in straight lines as an explanation of this thesis he compares the propagation of light with the motion imparted to the whole length of a stick when one end of it is pushed a similar disturbance in his opinion may be caused by the eye from which he explains how cats and other animals whose eyes glitter can see in the dark against this cartesian hypothesis it has been urged that through these rows of spheres light would be propagated not in straight lines alone but in every direction as pressure is transmitted in all directions by water descartes however had a large following for a time in his belief as to the nature of light later appeared two main theories of light vis-a-vis -vis the corpuscular theory and the undulatory theory the former theory was essentially that of the greeks although they adorned it with various fanciful hypotheses the great exponent of this theory in more recent times was sir isaac newton who based his acceptance of it on the conviction that the rectilinear propagation of light was explainable only on this basis sound waves he argued may be heard around corners water waves swing around the jutting point of land since light travels in straight lines the great philosopher concluded that it must be due to the projection from luminous bodies of extremely minute particles or corpuscles at a tremendous distance a contrary view was advocated by christian huygens about the end of the seventeenth century this famous dutch physicist regarded light like sound as a form of wave motion a very serious difficulty confronted this theory at the outset sound as is well known cannot traverse a vacuum von Guericke, the madgeberg magician had shown some years previously that a clock cannot be heard to strike in a receiver exhausted of air 
Light, however, can be seen through such a vacuum without difficulty, and travels without perceptible retardation through the enormous interstellar spaces, possibly vacua, infinitely better than can be gotten by the best means artificially. Some medium, Huygens reasoned, must be there to transmit these vibrations. He boldly assumed such a medium, and called it the luminiferous or light-bearing ether. The fact that other forms of undulatory motion, such as sound waves and water waves, can sweep around corners, he did not explain. At first sight, the corpuscular theory of light would seem to be by far the simpler and more obvious explanation of the two, and for more than a hundred years, the weight of Newton's authority threw the balance in favor of this theory. So many facts opposed to this theory have appeared, however, in modern experimentation, that the corpuscular theory is today practically abandoned. Light is admittedly a form of vibration. Light, it has been said, is a form of vibration, but it is evidently not the same vibration as that which takes place in the molecules of a heated conductor nor is it the same as the series of condensations and rarefactions of the air that is called sound. These latter are vibrations of matter, and light is evidently a vibration of a different nature, for no amount of light applied to one side of an iron door will shine through to the other side. Heat, on the contrary, or sound, will very quickly be transferred by conduction to the farther side of the door, Light, as it reaches the earth from the sun, must be considered as something closely analogous to radiant heat, if not identical with it. Recent study of the effects of radiation show that light and radiant heat are actually the same. Modern theory regards light as a form of radiant heat, whose wavelengths are such that they directly affect the optic nerve. The great source of light on the earth, far transcending all others, is the sun. It is by no means the only source. The moon, though intermittent in the amount of its light and shining in full radiance for only a few nights each month, must nevertheless be reckoned as a valuable adjunct illuminant to the sun. The light from stars and planets, too, is considerable. Walter Huff, in his Development of Illumination, says, Under the clear night sky of the Arizona deserts, the atmosphere seems charged with star mist. Eminences miles away may be outlined, the dial of a watch may be read, and a trail followed with little difficulty. These are the conditions under which night journeys are made to avoid the burning sun. The planet Venus, he continues, at certain times sheds light sufficient for the traveler over open country. There are at times nights of remarkable luminescence, Clouds become phosphorescent, and often under certain states of electrical stress, during high winds, glimmer with a faint light, not amounting to a discharge of the electric fluid. Frequently successive flashes of heat lightning aid the traveler in finding his way. It is possible also that the soil over certain regions may become phosphorescent under the light of the sun, and retain the property during the night as certain gems are phosphorescent after being submitted to sunlight. Snow has this property. Gaseous emanations of a phosphorescent character are occasionally abundant enough to produce temporary illumination, and the phosphorescent light of tropical seas has drawn forth many remarks on its beauty. 
Most of the work in the cities of today is done by diffused light. The direct rays of the sun are found in almost all cases too powerful for purposes of reading or writing, but the diffused light reflected in a thousand different directions from all surfaces not perfectly black or smooth supplies an abundance of light, soft yet bright enough for use. Since the introduction of artificial illuminance, it has ever been the aim of inventors to produce a light resembling this diffused daylight. The old sperm oil lamps and tallow dips of Europe, which came over with the colonists to America, were there superseded by petroleum lamps. The addition of the argon chimney of glass, the invention of which dates back only to about 1780, facilitated the development of the first really practical artificial illuminant. Even today, this old type of chimney and burner may be seen in the student lamp, so popular for reading purposes. The invention of the argand lamp, with the brilliantly luminous kerosene, soon made night's reading a general practice. Everybody could now read, even the poor, and everybody did. It is an interesting coincidence that is brought out by a recent writer on illumination, Dr. David T. Day, that the progress of the countries of the civilized world today is in nearly every case directly proportional to their consumption of kerosene. The arc lamp, with its incandescent light of Edison, marked a step forward toward the production of an ideal artificial light. But the arc light is not constant, and even when surrounded with a large globe, not sufficiently diffused for reading purposes. The incandescent bulb, notwithstanding the improved tantalum and osmium filaments, gives a glare too concentrated for ease in working. The nearest approach to diffused daylight has been made in the Hewitt mercury vapor lamp, where a small quantity of mercury in a long vacuum tube is first vaporized, and then rendered luminous under the influence of the electric current. This lamp, however, is open to objection on the ground of its color. The ideal lamp has yet to appear. End of section 8